this week we'll talk about being an MLOps architect. And we have a special guest today, Danny. Danny and I met more than one year ago, yeah, slightly more, I guess. And I wasn't sure who that guy was and who, what he wanted from me. I thought he was trying to sell me something and uh, he actually did try to sell me something. <laughs> so we then interacted more and more. And over time, I realized that Danny is quite a technical person. So he's quite hands-on and you know, he can code. And then the workshop he did with us um, a couple of months ago was quite technical. Danny is a very technical person, but I must admit, I still don't know what Danny is doing. And I admire people who can do many different things at the same time. So that's why I invited Danny to talk more about this. So Danny is an MLOps architect at Ylabs, and in this episode, we learn what it means and what MLOps architects do. So welcome, Danny. Hi, thanks, Lexi. I'm excited that you decided to invite me on, and I feel so honored that you say that you respect people who can do a lot of things, because I do a lot of things in my personal <laughs> life and in my professional life. <laughs> yeah, so before we talk about the main topic, MLOps architect, Let's start with your background. So can you tell us how you ended up doing so many things? And yeah, what was your career journey so far? Yeah, I'll give you the long version because we're, we're here for mm -hmm. an hour and I'm sitting back in my chair. So I grew up in the Bay Area in Mountain View, actually, which is the headquarters of Google and tons of startups. And I was surrounded by tech and I never thought I wanted to get into tech. I was never that good at math. My dad tried to teach me programming and I was so incredibly bored. I really loved the humanities. I really loved history and political science. So I thought the way to do that and make money was to become a lawyer. So I dropped out of high school. I went to community college and I started taking classes about how to be a paralegal, which is like kind of like what a nurse is to a doctor, a paralegal is to a lawyer, somebody who has some autonomy, but mostly is, is helping somebody with a higher level of certification. And I realized very quickly that I absolutely hated law that it really was not the right profession for me. I thought it was like sitting and discussing, you know, big ideas. And like in suits, right? Exactly. I thought it was like suits. Turns out it's paperwork. Like it's all just like filling out paperwork. And if you mess up the paperwork by switching a date, you are going to get somebody in jail. So I realized that the law is not for me and I had like a big identity crisis. I applied to colleges wanting to study political science, to university, I should say, wanting to study political science because I thought I had wanted to be a lawyer, got accepted for political science, and then really had no idea what to do. But I, I had taken a stats class in community college, and I, I really liked that statistics class. And then I found out that UCLA, the school that I went to, had a statistics major. So I started taking more and more stats classes for that major. It was originally, I was just going to do a minor, and then I liked it so much that I turned it into my major. It turned out that I actually really liked programming. I just wanted to do object-oriented programming instead of my dad was teaching me a different paradigm of programming. Basic, right? Go to 10, go to 20. <laughs> um, maybe I wouldn't. No, I definitely wouldn't. Have, yeah, like my dad really wanted to start with like logic gate. I mean, he has like an electrical engineering background. So he wanted to start at like the hardware level, logic gates, firmware. And that was like assembly. Assembly. Yeah, that was 2D for me. And I really like the abstractions that we get to use these days. And especially, so I started with C++. And that was interesting, but it was annoying having to think about objects and having to keep track of everything. Then I learned about R because we were using that in our stats courses. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I can write English and the computer will understand. And then when I discovered Python in my job, I was like, oh, man, OK, this is this is where it's at. I can write English. The computer will understand it. And people won't make fun of me for writing everything in R. So. <laughs> so that was my academic background and how I discovered machine learning because machine learning was really emerging at the core of the statistics classes that I was taking. All of the like interesting cutting edge stats classes were really machine learning oriented. I went back to the Bay Area to live with my family and uh, I worked at a, a startup called Kubel. I started there as an analyst uh, working on the product team and then got a promotion to be a product manager for our data science and our machine learning products because the company was pretty focused on data engineering, but we wanted to expand into data science and machine learning. From there, the story gets a little bit rocky. I wanted to move to Singapore. So I took a job working for Boston Consulting Group as a, a data scientist in Singapore. And I got accepted and whatever, I was on my way there. And then this, this like crazy thing happened where there was a global pandemic. So on my way to Singapore, I got stranded in the Philippines for a couple months, had to come back to the US, had to look for a new job. Um, I ended up working at a database company called Imply. And then I, I joined Y Labs uh, about a year after working at Imply. 
So uh, a very convoluted story for how I got mm -hmm. here. So what did you do before Y-Labs? What was your role? Yeah, so before Y-Labs, I was a, a field engineer. Field engineer. Yeah, there's a bunch of like very related kind of abstract titles that are all related in the space, like solutions architect, solutions mm -hmm. engineer, sales engineer, field engineer. Basically what they mean is you work for a vendor and that vendor's product is so technical that a salesperson by themselves can't sell it, right? So you need somebody who specializes in the technical side of the product to be able to talk to customers. My joke that I would make when I was working at Imply was that I was there to answer questions when my sales rep didn't know what they were talking about anymore. <laughs> Sounds like a job description. <laughs> okay, so you first did law, then uh, stats major, then uh, you worked as an analyst, a PM after that, then as a fields engineer, and now as MLOps architect. So you have... Uh, like quite a few hats, right? Like you tried quite a few different things. So what do you do today as a, an MLOps architect? So I think Alexi asked me this question over Slack before we had scheduled this podcast. And I think my very vague, non-descriptive answer is how I managed to land getting getting interviewed on this podcast. Because the answer <laughs> is that it, it's still very much winding. The very short answer is that now my role is primarily focused on doing very similar to what I was doing before, but not as extensively customer oriented. Basically, my skill set is that I am very comfortable communicating. I'm very comfortable navigating customer interactions. I've spent a lot of time in this market, so I understand what's happening in the market. So I can both do the business stuff and I understand the technical stuff well enough to be able to get by. I haven't actually written any very serious code in a while, but I can, you know, throw together a demo. And importantly, I understand the basic concepts that are necessary to be able to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. So anything that requires both a technical understanding and mm -hmm. a business understanding is basically what I do now. Mm -hmm. I think you're quite humble because the demo you did, the webinar, the workshop you did about Wildlocks, uh, Wildlocks, it was quite technical. So you would create a Kafka stream, right? So then you would explain how profiles work, like how they are mergeable. I think it's... Uh, pretty low level i would say i mean to some extent right but still like it's not just oh some technical stuff it's not every data scientist knows these kind of things i'll tell my dad you said that okay. or maybe he's <laughs> tuning in probably not <laughs> maybe so let's see if there are questions uh, so this is what mlops architects do right so this is uh, a person who can talk with both customers and business and technical person but persons like people in the team yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is what the role would be in general. Mm -hmm. This is what the title we decided on for me was, because when I joined Y Labs, we were still a, a seed stage company. Everybody else's title was engineer, or we had, I think, just Bernice. So I think we had just the one data scientist and then the, the founders, right, the C-suite. Mm -hmm. So I was the first person who didn't found the company whose job wasn't building the product which meant that I was doing really like anything and everything that wasn't building the product. So the the architect in the title is is really meant to convey the fact that I work with our customers, with our partners, with even internally within our company, with helping people understand the landscape, right? Like I, I don't do a whole lot of engineering these days. I'm not building scalable things, but I, I understand the trade-offs involved in different architectural choices and in different tooling choices. And I understand the, the tooling market out there from having been in the space for so long that yeah, I can help people navigate and you know help our, our customers navigate their tooling choices in a way that's helpful for them. Because I don't know if you've seen the 2022 big data and AI landscape diagram that Matt Turk puts out. It's a little bit no. scary to look at these days, no? Is it the same one the, from Gartner or it's a different one? Oh no, it's we like to call it like a, a NASCAR diagram because it literally, it just looks like the side of a, a NASCAR with so many different logos on it. Maybe you can share the link and I will post the link in the chat and then right. in the show notes. Yeah, people can also look up uh, Matt, yeah. Matt Turk data landscape and they'll, they'll uh -huh. find it. So it's like, you know, a big image with a lot of small logos, right? Right. And they it represents all of these companies that do ML, ML ops, ML as a service, data, data engineering, ETL pipelines. And then you really have to zoom in to see the logos, right? Because otherwise yeah. it's just a big blur, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. So you're saying that you actually came up with this title, you invented it for this job you were going to do? I would say so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you met other MLOps architects? 
I've met some, I think the closest is AI architect. And those are people that I tend to work with pretty closely at our, at our customers that are large enough to have somebody in that role. But no, I mean, I've met MLOps engineers and I tend to work pretty closely with those people too, because they're usually building out the MLOps platform at a larger company. But yeah, I think MLOps architect, we can look on LinkedIn, but I, I think I might be the only one. <laughs> yeah. So because my next question is how many people are out there with this title, but I guess, yeah, you don't know this because I was also wondering like how many people are there who do similar work to you, I guess, in some companies who also speak are in this field, like MLOps field, uh, maybe, I don't know, iterative for others who have some solutions. And then they have, uh, how is it called, uh, sales engineer or solution architect, right? Who are doing similar stuff, right? I would say so. Yeah, I think there's some limitations in terms of thinking about my role purely in the same way that, I, that my role was not Imply. Like at Imply, really, my job was pre-sales, right? I would go in the sales net with the, the account executive, I would do the demo, I would like run the proof of concept with the customer, which you know required a certain amount of technical skill. But then when things started to like really take off after the deal was signed, when it was time to really do implementation, I would just hand it off to a solutions architect and go on to, mm -hmm. to the next opportunity. At Y Labs, like I really I was the first person hired on the go-to-market team, and I was the only person on the go-to-market team for about six months. So I was doing like our DevRel evangelism, developer advocacy, I was doing our product marketing. I was doing like our social media and events and, and community management and all of these different go-to-market related roles. Thankfully, since then, that was very overwhelming. Thankfully, since then, we've hired like a customer success data scientist to do post-sales, solutions engineer to do pre-sales, an evangelist to take over a lot of the community and community management, DevRel, Dev advocacy stuff. So I'm mostly still just helping them onboard, helping them get their footing, giving them guidance and direction in terms of how to be successful, and then doing a lot of the, the product marketing and kind of figuring out how we want to decide the, the messaging directions of our product. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's still a little bit challenging to like strictly define the role. And this is like a, an ongoing conversation that I have with the leadership of my company to figure out like, how can I be most helpful given this skill set? Because mm -hmm. I know I can be flexible. I can do a lot of different things. And the question is just how can I help the most with the skills that I have? Yeah, with this flexibility, when you say you can do whatever needs to happen, right? So you need to do DevRel, you just go and do DevRel until you hire a DevRel person, right? And then you need to do community management before you hire a community manager, right? And now you're taking care of product analytics, uh, product marketing, sorry, and then you hire a product marketer who will take care of this, right? And then I guess you just can chill and, I don't know, do interviews <laughs> <laughs> all day long. But yeah, with this flexibility, well, the question I have is like, how can you convince a potential employer that you can do all these things? Because it's a lot of different, not random things, but they're different things. Like, how can yeah. you convince that you can do these things? Totally. And thankfully, it's not a question I have to ask myself right now because I mm -hmm. love my job. <laughs> You've managed to convince. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, I think the, the great thing about working at really early stage startups is that you do really pick up this, like you do whatever needs to get done mentality. And that's something that it's not a hundred percent, whether you can pick it up with somebody from talking to them, but there are like some signs, right. That hiring managers at small startups can use to figure out, like, I hate this, this term, like go getter is such a like dumb go phrase. Go, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like that, that's what it is, right. It's like somebody who's willing to like pick up the slack do whatever needs to happen, right? Like this person who isn't like, come in and tell me what to do, like assemble this, this part in this way, but somebody who will look at the big picture and figure out what needs to be solved there. So I, at least for early stage startups, I think they can look back at my track record and not that I'm looking for a new job anytime soon, but I don't think it would be that challenging if, you know, if Y Labs had to go down and I had to look for another job. I, I don't think it would be that challenging for me. Now, if I wanted to go work at like a, like a fan company, I think that'd be impossible. I mean, and I also like wouldn't know. They will torture you with this lead code style uh, questions first. Right. Before you can even show that you can do other things. Exactly. And I don't think I would really enjoy working at a company mm -hmm. like that because I also wouldn't be able to like do everything in the way that I can do yeah. everything at the startup, right? The, the issue with when, when you've hired somebody for every role, then that means that everybody needs to have just one particular role. And mm -hmm. I think it's kind of exciting and fun to wear so many hats and to, get pulled so many mm -hmm. directions. Now, it's obviously mm -hmm. also like stressful and hard and there's, there's disadvantages to it too. 
But I, I wake up every day not knowing what I'm going to do that day and checking my Google Calendar to figure out what meetings I have. <laughs> That's exciting. Do you remember how your interview, how did it go? Like with who was the interview? What kind of questions they asked? Like how did they decide that you're good for this? Yeah. So the interviews like got pulled in a couple different directions, right? Because they wanted to validate a number of different skills. So we did the Amazon style, like intensive interview process where I had five interviews spread out. I think I had mine over two days, but like Amazon style would be five interviews in one day. With a lot of leadership principles, right? Yeah. A lot of the way that Ylabs operates comes from Amazon. So most of the founders, if not all, they come from Amazon, right? Three out of four. Yeah. Okay. So the interview that stood out to me a lot was with our data scientist, Bernice, because I was just so excited about the company after this interview. That doesn't always happen, right? It's, it's not every conversation you have with people at a, even a good company or a good role will get you excited. But Bernice asked me some really interesting questions. We got to like really dive into some machine learning theory and like our mutual statistics backgrounds and that way of analyzing machine learning was really helpful in that interview. She introduced me to some new concepts, which I found really, really interesting about particular ways of doing splitting in random forests and in decision trees um, and, and how to speed that process up. And I, I just realized that I met somebody who was like smarter than I was in the same way that I was. And that's always a very exciting thing for me to find in other people because it means that I can learn a lot from them. So Bernice asked me a lot of like data science and machine learning oriented questions. Maria, the chief operating officer, who's the person that I directly report to, asked me a lot of like business and like sales oriented questions. The CEO asked me kind of like directional, high level overview questions. And then I think I also had interviews with our chief product officer, Sam, but I don't totally remember what those questions were. And I think Andy, our head of engineering, also asked me questions, but I, I don't remember them either. So basically the entire company, all the stuff, right, interviewed you. Because you said there were four founders? Yeah, so it was the four founders and Bernice. Yeah. So okay. there was there was a big engineering team. There are I mean not not huge, but there were like ah, okay. five or six people on the engineering team at that point. Um and I only got interviewed by the head of engineering. But also like I'm sure if I practiced and read cracking the coding interview and like did the code for a couple hours a day, I could do like a traditional software engineering interview. But yeah, like I said, that's not really what my skill set is. The coding that I do is really, I would say, not engineering. Like I program and I code, but it's like scripting rather than trying to build scalable processes and uh, software that'll scale. Mm -hmm. And to why did you decide to actually, like, I guess at some point they gave you an offer and then you needed to decide, okay, do I want to join this company and do this particular thing, join this company in this role or not? Like, how did you make this decision that you want to do like all these things? Like, wasn't it scary? Like, what if I couldn't do this thing? Like, what if I'm not a good product marketer? I guess you didn't have that much uh, community management experience either, right? Back then, wasn't it scary for you? Yeah, so I remember when I made the decision and, you know, there was like still the negotiation period afterward and all this, but there was a point that I was mentally got committed to it. And it was almost probably about 50 weeks ago. I, my anniversary is coming up. So it's a fun, fun time for us to be having this conversation. It was the summer solstice and I was backpacking in Denali National Park for four days, completely disconnected from the world and seeing grizzly bears and getting to the tops of mountains and hiking on glaciers. And Spending the time out there, I had to struggle with what I wanted to do, right? Because I was at Imply, I was being very successful as a field engineer. I basically had an offer in hand to get promoted to a management role in that field engineering organization. But I, I thought about like what that would mean for me to be a manager of, of field engineering. And I realized that although I wanted and still want the experience of, of management and understanding what that's like, I would get a lot more exposure to a lot more skills and a lot more interesting experience by joining such an early stage startup. And then the, the big gamble, right, is like early stage startups tend to go out of business, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. pretty hard. So you're, you're making a really strong bet primarily on the people. And I thought about the conversations that I had in my interviews. I thought about the people that I'd met at this company. And I realized that I was just so impressed with them. And then I knew that, you know, no matter what the market was going to throw at us, no matter how our product evolved, that this group of people was capable of making the right choices and that 
they were going to build a, a really strong company and organization. So yeah, I think I figured out what I wanted for myself, which was I want to do a lot of things and experience hypergrowth at a really early stage startup. And also I want to be working with these people and I want to have them in my company, in my life. Yeah. And it all occurred to you in the mountains while watching Grizzly Bears, right? Yeah, I think it was more on the mountaintops rather than the grizzly bears. I was mostly just afraid <laughs> rather than thinking about why labs. <laughs> How far was the grizzly bear? Or like, was it a metaphorical expression that you actually saw the, oh, the no. bear? Oh, no, it was certainly not metaphorical. No, no, no. Was, there's a lot of grizzly bears in Denali National Park. So the closest I ever saw them, I would say, was maybe, you probably want this in, in metric, right? I would say like 40 meters, but on the other side of a river. Oh, okay. But that's pretty close, right? Yeah. Well, okay. So it was like, that was pretty close. That's the closest I saw them. Apparently, one walked through our camp while I was in my tent <laughs> and walked right by my tent door opening, according to my friends. So I guess I was within like a couple meters of a grizzly mm -hmm. bear at one point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that I did not see. I guess these things make you wonder what the future holds and is this what I'm doing? Is it for me or not, right? <laughs> like, do I want yeah, to be maybe. a manager on that, like a set of field engineers or I want to do, try many different things, right? Right, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I see that we have quite a few questions. So maybe we can cover a couple of them. So the question is, MLOps lifecycle management has a lot of topics to cover and tooling to optimize from training to inference. How do you prioritize your work with data scientists? Yeah, great question. So why labs, Alexei, I promise not a product touch. Uh, why <laughs> labs is a company that's really focused at the end of the life cycle, right? Or rather, there's not an end to the life cycle because it's a cycle and it's continuous. At the end of the, the line, if you were to draw this linearly, right? Because what YLabs does is it provides monitoring and observability for models that have been deployed into production, right? After you've taken your model, you've trained it, you've experimented on it, you've figured out the model you want to deploy, you deploy it. Now, after you've deployed it, you want to make sure that it's still operating effectively, that its accuracy is high. I mean, hopefully you're not actually using accuracy. You're, it's like F1 is high, wh whatever accuracy metric you're using. And that's that's really where Ylabs comes into the picture. So I would say when I think about what I need to prioritize in terms of my conversations with, with my customers, what I need to prioritize in terms of my understanding of the tooling is basically the further away it is from productionization, the less I care about it, right? Like mm -hmm. when I'm talking to customers, what we spend most of our time talking about is what does your inference process look like, right? Are you using Bento ML or using SageMaker, UbiOps, Teachable Hub, right? There's like all of these different tools, be they open source, self-deployed tools, fast API, Flask, or, or managed service providers around deployment. Spent a lot of time on that less and less time as we go through like experiment tracking, right? Like weights and biases, don't really have to think about them very often. Even further back, like the model training, mm -hmm. I don't even know what people use for model. I mean, probably still scikit-learn and TensorFlow and the, the old basics. Yeah, Exibust. Uh, yeah, that was, that's Same what I was using stuff. in college. Like, I don't think it's changed that much. So yeah, so I really focus on the, the tooling that's kind of very late in, in that process because it tends to be what's most relevant to me. As we're expanding, and this is like very early to be talking about this, but we're exploring more how we can help not just data scientists, but also data engineers, and how even for data scientists, we can help them understand the entire data pipeline, right? Because when you determine that there's a problem with your machine learning model, normally the problem is much earlier in the data pipeline. When you've got like data drift, it's because it's happening in the real world. When you've got a data quality problem, it's because something upstream of your model has gone wrong, which means that to have observability into the model, to be able to solve problems in the model, you need to be able to look at everything upstream. So I'm staying really up to date on what are people doing in terms of pipelining, what are they doing in terms of orchestration, and really making sure that I still understand the whole data engineering process end to end. Fortunately, my work at Kubel was really helpful in making sure that I had a strong grounding in that. But yeah, understanding all of the ETL and transformation and all of the work that happens before data even gets to a model has been really near and dear to my heart these days. But that's that's kind of how I prioritize is based on what's most relevant to Y Labs. So would you say that you usually talk to customers who already have something in production, who already 
trained a model who figured out how to best deploy this model. They already deployed it and now they started to maybe experiencing some, I don't know, drifts. So models go crazy or something like this. And then they think, okay, how can we solve this problem? And then they go to you, right? Would you say that this is usually the case or sometimes uh, companies, uh, clients come to you without anything? Those are definitely the easiest conversations when they come and they've already deployed a model and they've already felt mm -hmm. pain, right? Because then then they have pain that they need to alleviate it and, and Y Labs can help with that. Uh, more often than not, we try to kind of be proactive and preemptive instead of reactive. So if we think companies have models in production at all, we'll talk to them even before they've experienced that pain to kind of coach them through our approach and our thinking. And sometimes they understand and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we monitor our applications in production. Of course, we should monitor our models. Other times they're like, oh, it's not a priority for the organization. And then we say, okay, we'll talk to you in six months when one of your models goes down and, and then we'll be able. I think this is what you told me. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and go figure, you did come back and talk to me about it again later. I don't know if it was quite yeah. And you know, we have some conversations with people who are still at the model development stage, but you know, it's it's just not the most useful stage for us to be involved, right? Because they're trying to solve different problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. You said you are trying to be preemptive, and this is also part of your role, right? So you are trying to spread awareness about this problem. I don't know, talk on different podcasts or like about this model monitoring, why it's important, what can go wrong if you don't monitor your models, uh, things like this, right? This is what you used to do, right? Are, are you still doing this? I would say I still do it to, to some extent. You know, we, we have a full-time evangelist now and our data scientist, Bernice, who I talked about earlier, you know, does this to some extent too. I would say we've seen like a really good increase in market education on this topic. People are much less often asking, why do I have to monitor my model? And are more often asking, how do I monitor my model? So that's a big improvement and, and a big change. But there's still some market education to be done, I would say, especially outside of like major tech hubs. Yeah, there are quite a few companies that do monitoring and all of them are spreading awareness, right? Right. So people now know about this problem more than let's say one year ago or two years ago. Exactly, exactly. And actually, funnily enough, one of the reasons that I was so intrigued about Y Labs is because while I was working at Imply, I was actually, this is back in second half of 2020, first half of 2021. I had actually been going around and doing a little bit of evangelism for Apache Druid, which is the open source project that Imply is built on. It's basically like a fast analytic database. And I was going around and saying, hey, you can use Apache Druid to do machine learning monitoring. And I would like speak at, at conferences and, and meetups and talk about how you could architect Apache Druid as the database to do anomaly detection and alerting and figure out analytics for machine learning. And then uh, I talked to Y Labs and I was like, oh, using Apache Druid for machine learning monitoring. I literally have been going around and talking about people doing this for the past year. So it seems so serendipitous. And, and yeah, that's that's another big reason why, why I joined Y Labs. That's what we use under the hood, right? Druid. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're using under the hood. It would be a little bit hard to just use Druid for this because Druid is mm -hmm. just a database. And then things on top of that, right? Right. So you need like dashboard UI on top of mm -hmm. it to be able to like see these changes. You need anomaly detection. But yeah, in terms of having a really fast, scalable database, Apache Druid is is really useful. And, and we have some talks where we talk about this as well. Our, mm -hmm. our data engineer, Drew, talks about how Apache Druid is a really good fit for this particular problem. And that's not the part of the open source thing. It's not a part of Y logs, right? Y logs you just use for creating profiles, and then these profiles are sent somewhere, and this somewhere is your proprietary solution, right? Where you keep track of all these things, and then you under the hood you use it, right? Yeah. So if you go to ylabs.ai/observability, you can see actually everything that I'm that I'm talking about. There's like this architecture diagram that explains exactly what you're saying. So Y logs is the open source, it takes in data, it creates data profiles, which are statistical summaries of that data. Those profiles get sent to Y Labs. Under the hood, they get sent to, well, there's an intermediate process that cleans them and does whatever, but then it lands in this Apache Druid database. And then we've got visualizations, anomaly detection, trigger alerts, all of these things built on top of it. 
Yeah, another question we have is, I don't know if you can answer this because the previous question, I think you clarified that you're a bit outside of these decisions. So the question is, on what basis you make your choice of tools? Do you decide to use Kubeflow, which is an open source tool, versus Vertex AI, which is commercial, versus MLflow, etc. So I don't know, do you get to make these choices? Like, do customers talk to you when they are not sure what to use? Yeah, no, it's it's a really a really good question. And especially the build versus buy question is a really early important decision to make, right? Like how invested are we in building out this this feature or this tool ourselves when, you know, Y Labs costs $50 per model per month and you're paying your engineer god knows how much money. So it's a, it's a question we get a lot, you know, especially for for our space. Now, obviously, I'm not the one in charge of making that decision. But I work with people, I work with data scientists and with machine learning engineers so that they can make the case to their managers, right? They, these are people who've probably never bought software at a commercial level before. So I help them make the case to their manager and talk to them about what their manager will care about, you know, KPIs, MBOs, company risk, all of these things like garlic to vampires for machine learning engineers and data scientists, yeah, but which are really important for, for <laughs> navigating a business or an organization, right? And I think that's how I can be most useful to the customers that I work with. Mm -hmm. But I guess this is like more in the context of whether they need to go with YLabs or with some open source alternative. But when it comes to model serving, which is not what you do as a company, let's say you can use Kubeflow, like for pipelines or this Vertex AI, or I don't know, built in, like a company can just build this in house, right? So do your customers also ask you for an opinion about this? Or usually they already have something, they already have Vertex AI when they come to you and they say, okay, I have this pipeline on Vertex AI, I have this model deployed in this way, now help me monitor it. Yeah. So YLabs is platform agnostic, and we integrate with a lot of different tools, basically any tool that can run Python or Java. So like anything with Spark or Scala or Java, as well as anything in Python. So we tend not to be too strongly opinionated, and we think you know our customers should pick whatever is best for them. And yeah, usually people at least have like an early choice made, right? Like by the time they want to do monitoring, usually they're already doing inference. So I don't think I have a ton of influence with, with the customers that I work with on what their inference architecture looks like. Now, by the time we've had a relationship for like six months or a year, if they're doing an architectural review and if it's time for them to, to switch up the work that they're doing and they're examining their tool set, at that point, usually I can be more helpful, right? Because most of the time they're pretty in the weeds, like using this one thing, they're very deep and not very wide on tooling exposure versus I'm very, very wide and, and not at all deep on these tools. So like I understand each one of these tools and how they interoperate and what the advantages and disadvantages are, but I've maybe launched them or played around with them once. Mm -hmm. I don't have like the deep expertise that people who really spend their time in this tool have. Mm -hmm. Then another question we have is about this NX standard. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Like it's getting wider adoption. So would you say many of your customers use it or it's still, I don't know, scikit-learn models in Pickle deployed in Flask? Yeah, I, so I remember when Onyx came out, it was very interesting and very exciting because we had been using PMML as kind of like the standard markup language for this, but Onyx kind of helped to, to bridge that gap for interoperability of of these libraries i don't see a ton of people using onyx but again like i'm really not that involved in the model development stage and that's i think a lot of where onyx would be seen i think onyx is really cool in theory and probably gets used a lot at like really big organizations that have a need for really diverse tool sets especially with like the smb and commercial customers that i work with they tend to kind of like pick one tool set and run with it versus Onyx is really meant for interoperability and the ability to communicate across different ways of training models. Mm -hmm. What kind of setup do you usually see that you see more often than other kinds of setups? If you can talk about this, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing proprietary. It's not that I can't talk about it because mm -hmm. I have a contract, but it's just like there is no usual in, in machine learning operation. Mm -hmm. So everything is different. Yeah, I mean, I would say the only, the slight common trends that I see is people who really like AWS will mm -hmm. use an entire AWS stack. People who really like CP will entirely use a Vertex stack. People who really like Azure really like will just use an entire Azure machine learning stack mm -hmm. and not like touch too many other other vendors. 
but it's such a small mark. Like, it's not that there's consensus, mm -hmm. certainly not that there's consensus around only using cloud vendor tools, because mm -hmm. a lot of those tools are kind of lacking in a lot of ways, right? Like, there's a lot of feature gaps in a lot of those technologies. So, yeah, we, I definitely see super diverse. And, and th this is one of the things that AYA, the AI Infrastructure Alliance, which both Data Talks Club and Y Labs are associated with, tries to kind of help customers navigate is how do you fit all of these different tools together and which tools are kind of swappable, right? Like you'd mentioned, you know, there are other companies out there. We're not the only machine learning monitoring and observability company. There are other companies out there as well. How do you like figure out which tool is right for you? And even before that, how do you figure out where the tool fits in in the landscape? And that can be really daunting to navigate for, you know, especially somebody just starting to get their MLOps architecture together. Yeah, thanks. What do you like doing most in machine learning and data science? What is the most rewarding things for you think for you in the field? Good question. I really like getting exposed to new interesting ideas within the field and like and really getting to like I miss doing research basically. And not that I was, you know, ever like that strong of an academic. But it gets me really excited when I find a topic that I can obsess about and that I'll just spend hours figuring out and researching. Like most recently, that topic for me was fairness and, and bias in machine learning, because, you know, I'd talked for a while about how explainability is the thing that everybody uses for this. And then I thought about it. I was like, but why? Like, how does explainability actually relate to fairness and bias? So I put on my dusty old paralegal hat again and started researching the law around discrimination and bias. And I, I ended up getting really deep into this and realizing that actually the, the best things we can do to prevent bias in machine learning models is rather than try to focus on explainability, to focus on segmentation and the ability to, to be able to track disparate impact. So yeah, I, I really love the ability to just deep dive into a topic. A few years ago, AutoML got me really interested uh, and hyperparameter tuning, and uh, it turned out that they were the same thing, which was pretty funny to realize at the time. Yeah, so just getting to like really geek out and go really, really deep on a topic in ML is the, still the most exciting thing for me. So yeah, you do or you took part in doing DevRel, product marketing, community management. Then also you said, you just mentioned that you're doing a bit of research, like figuring out like how fairness biases work, like do we need explainable AI or not, like things like this. That's quite a lot of things, and it's pretty wide, right? So how how do you manage to do all that? Like, how do you manage to do all these different things and stay sane? Like, what's your secret? Oh, that's like a big assumption that I stay sane. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so that's your secret. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I have a lot of productivity management techniques that I use. I try to stick to inbox zero. Right now, my inbox is a little bit of a nightmare. But I really like using my inbox as a like a tracking to-do list. And then I also have uh, another to-do list in Google Calendar that I keep associated with it. I try to like keep my tabs under control too, because I know it adds a lot of mental stress to me. You try, right? How, I try, how, yeah. Because it, <laughs> it worked? Uh, it's decent, I would say. It's not okay. the worst. Like how many tabs do you have open now? Well, so the thing that I do that I don't see a lot of other people doing is I actually, this is crazy, I use Windows, not like the operating <laughs> system, but like I have multiple windows open and each window is a project effectively. So I have like one window for like work, workspaces, right? Or how it's called. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's how uh, Apple refers to it. So I've got kind of my like catch all Gmail, Google Calendar, whatever like article I want to read, one off stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I've got, you know, one workspace that's dedicated to explainability, fairness, bias, and that research that I'm doing. One that's related to getting ready for uh, our evangelist Sage to come on Data Talks Club in a couple of weeks and making sure he's ready for that. And, you know, just like using these workspaces in this way. Mm -hmm. I would say that, like, I definitely think I could be more effective at each thing if I was only doing that thing. But I don't think that I've hit the limits of my ability to wear multiple hats and do multiple tasks. So would you say that sometimes you wish you were more like a specialist? You would just focus on, I don't know, explainability, or you would just focus on DevRel, or you would quickly become bored? I don't know whether I would become bored. I'm not sure. But it's not an appealing idea to me right now. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it will be later. But we were just talking about AutoML and 
uh, hyperparameter tuning. Are you familiar with the explore exploit trade-off and optimization theory? I've heard about this. Yeah, it's right. like in okay. reinforcement learning, right? So like I'm more like an exploiter. So let's say exploration would be trying different kinds of food. Like you go to different restaurants and me as a person, like I find, okay, I like this type of food. So spaghetti bolognese, and I would just stick to this. So I'm more like an exploit kind of person, but explore kind of person would just, you know, try different types of food and they wouldn't stop just on one thing. So you're saying you're right. more like explore kind of person. Well, the really useful finding from optimization theory is that you need to like balance the two of these. And if you've mm -hmm. got a bounded amount of time over which you can optimize around a search space, your optimal strategy is to start off very exploratory and then to start taking more and more advantage of the things that you've learned in order to be able to exploit and get the, the maximum value. This is like Thompson resampling is one of the easiest and best solutions to the multi-armed bandit problem. It's way simpler to implement than, you know, a full reinforcement neural network. And also it's like Bayesian, which is cool. And it works really well for this because it does exactly that. So it starts off by like exploring the search space. And then as it learns more and more, it starts exploiting more and more. And then at the, by the time it's done, it's just exploiting full time. So this is pretty abstract, right? Optimization theory, Thompson resampling, whatever. Mm -hmm. You can think about this in our lives too, right? Like I've got a bounded time that I can use to try to figure out what makes me fulfilled, happy, joyful, ecstatic, whatever it might be, right? And I, whatever I'm optimizing around, whatever that optimizing function is looking for, I can think about the period of my life that I'm in and whether I should be focusing on exploration and exploitation. And at this point in my life, like I am really interested and I get a lot of value out of learning more and more and trying out lots of different things. And actually there's some good research that says that as we get older, we seek novelty less and less, right? Like we mm -hmm. naturally evolve into being more exploitative, which sounds very negative, but not actually like exploiting people, but exploiting our knowledge about the world, right? We evolve into being more exploitative as we get older. And I, I think that's really powerful and a really useful mental framework for me to keep in mind as I think about like, oh, would I be happier picking one thing and specializing in? I think likely, probably, it's what everybody else does. So mm -hmm. but I, I don't think I'll be like this for the rest of my life. But right now, it's really powerful for me to get to explore and try lots of things. And what's cool about this is there are places where you can do this. It's not like people hire for a role that is super defined, like you need to do X, Y, and Z, right? They know that it can be pretty different. And then how did you say you pick whatever needs to be done, right? And it's right. cool that there are positions like that where you can actually do this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm super lucky to have developed the skill set that kind of bridges the gap between two very important, but often very disparate. I, I used to have a joke that I'm neither scared of numbers nor scared of talking and that the being scared of neither of them is, is a rare combination. Okay. Yeah. Would you say that there are many, like, is there a demand for people like you, uh, pardon me saying, who do a lot of things, but not well? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think the consensus that I've seen in the industry is kind of a cop out, but there's this concept of being T-shaped as an engineer. Yeah, right. And that means kind of like doing both, right? Like mm -hmm. having broad, broad overview and then really deep expertise in something. I would say that I'm kind of like horizontal line shape rather than T-shaped. But the nice thing about being horizontal line shaped is it's easy for me to find something that I want to really get deep into. I would say there's enough demand for me that I'm not that concerned about mm -hmm. not being able to find a job in the future. And I'm very lucky to be in a position to be able to say that. I've heard also about comp shape, you know, like a, a vertical horizontal bar with you know, many things sticking outside. <laughs> uh -huh. Like when you know many, many different things, not super deep, but enough to get the job done. I like all of this difference. Maybe that's you. Like, or... E shape, but E like then you would like capital E, but then rotate it sideways. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, like if somebody wants to do to follow your path and do wear many different hats and do pretty much whatever needs to be done, like what you would suggest them to do, like how should they go about finding a role like this? What kind of background they should have? Like, is it even important? Does it really matter? Good question. I think. Background, not in the sense of academic achievement or previous titles, is not important. Background in the sense of like 
being able to do these things matters, right? Like you, you need to be able, if you want to be successful and if you want to provide value to a company, you don't need to know exactly how to do it, but you need to know that you can figure out how to do it, right? Like none of us know off the bat how to program or even when we start a new project, like I spend most of my time Googling it on Stack Overflow, right? But I know how to find the answers to the questions that I have. I think that's a very important skill, being able to find answers to questions that you have and knowing how to navigate like the massive world of information that's that's in front of us. So, you know, being an effective Googler is a really useful skill. I would say that more broadly, I think it's definitely very possible to break into this if people are are genuinely really, really interested. You know, if an engineer wants to try out getting more into the business side, product management can be a really rewarding role. Sales engineering can be a really rewarding role. And, and you'll find that there's like a lot of demand for being able to bridge that gap. You know, if you're on the engineering side, you'll need to develop more of your communication and, and business skills. For people wanting to go the other way, I would say it's much more of an, and, and I would say that's not easy, but it's not the hardest thing to do, right? Going the other way, I think is much more of an uphill battle, right? Like if you're an account executive and you want to become a sales engineer, I think that's really challenging to do, but it's certainly possible, right? Because it's you can learn and you can upskill. So, you know, people who are on the business side but want to be more technical, there's tons of resources out there, you know, like Data Talks Club has Zoom camps, there's like unlimited courses and books and all of this information out there. And it's really just about like sitting down and committing. And I, I think a big component of this is growth mindset, right? Is like looking at yourself and the world, not as like a static thing that exists and will always do the same thing. Our brains are incredible. Neurons that fire together, wire together. It's self-reinforcing. And you're capable of changing who you are very fundamentally if you really put the intention and the practice into it. Mm -hmm. So you need to have coding skills. You need to have communication skills. You need to be good at Googling things and you need to have growth mindset. And I'm really curious about this being an effective Googler because with coding, you can, I don't know, find a course on free coding camp or code academy or whatnot and, and learn this, or I don't know, go into a bootcamp. But how do you learn to Google? There are not, no courses about this, right? Are there courses about being an effective Googler? I haven't seen such things. You know, if there's not, we should start one because it's a very valuable skill. Uh -huh. I think those of us who grew up with technology have a little bit of an unfair advantage because like when we're younger, our brains are more plastic. There's studies that show that millennials and, and Gen Z people, like they don't memorize things as well as people in previous generations, but they're better at memorizing the path to be able to retrieve information. Mm -hmm. They'll remember the series of jumps that they made, be it referencing in a book or Googling of how to get somewhere, but they won't remember the actual thing itself, which is very nice when you can plug your brain into the global human connection of the internet and very inconvenient when you're backpacking in Denali National Park and you, you don't remember whether <laughs> grizzly bears are attracted to the smell of food. Turns out they are. Yeah. Or simply like internet doesn't work, right? And then you're right, exactly. stuck at home with a computer that works, that's connected to the power, like you have your VS code open, you have your Python, but what to do next? <laughs> How do I start? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I've tried like coding on planes before and it's very yeah, challenging. doesn't me. work. I'm just so used to Googling everything. Yeah. But I would say there might be a course. If not, again, Alexi, you and I, we should get on this because I think it's mm -hmm. going to be a big moneymaker for us. But I, I think also that this is one of those skills that you can just pick up, like stop asking your coworkers things, unless it's things that aren't Googleable. Like if it's internal things, then you're not going to be able to find them on Google. But if you like want to figure out a particular Excel thing, take the extra time, you know, like at least in my growing up in elementary school, the teacher would not tell us definitions of words. She would tell us to go look it up in a dictionary. And I think it's kind of the same. Like if you want to get good at using a dictionary, if you want to get good at using Google, just stop asking other people for answers and start finding them yourself. And it's hard and it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, like learning a new language, it's an uphill battle, but your brain will wire itself in a way that makes it easier. Okay. I think we should be prepping up. And then since we spent quite a lot of time talking about Wildlocks and then your name here is Wildlabs team. And we know that because you pay just for one license in Zoom. <laughs> so the question is about Wildlocks. So what are the key functional differences between Ylogs free versus paid? So there's no paid version of Ylogs. Ylogs is our open source library. So it's totally open source. Everything about it is completely accessible and completely free, obviously, as all open source libraries are. 
Ylogs takes in data, and it can be text or tabular data or images, whatever kind of data, and it generates statistical summaries of that data. And those summaries are called data profiles. Those profiles, you can do a number of different things with them. In a course earlier, in a workshop earlier with Alexia Data Talks Club, I showed how you could set constraints in order to get alerted when data looks different than you expected to, how you can like visually explore your data using the profile visualizer. One of the things you can do with these, these profiles is you can send them to Y Labs. Now, Y Labs takes in these profiles that you've generated with the open source. And with these statistical summaries of data, it allows you to track changes in your data over time which sounds very innocuous, but actually has very powerful impacts both for data scientists and for data engineers, right? For data scientists, you can pick up on model performance degradation, model failure, data drift, all of these types of problems. For data engineers, you can pick up on data quality issues like a spike in null values, breaking changes of data schema or data definitions. So you, you can pick up on these types of problems in a solution that's totally SaaS, so you never have to deal with infrastructure. It's got a self-serve option, so you can go to ylabs.ai slash free and sign up for an account yourself, and you'll never have to talk to me or a salesperson or anybody like that. You can just start using it right away, and if you have just a single model or just a single data set, you can use it for free. So the, I guess the important distinction between ylabs and ylogs is ylogs is open source, and it takes in data and generates profiles. ylabs is software as a service. And it takes in those profiles and it generates alerts, anomaly detection, and allows you to explore those profiles. Yeah, so do sign up now. So maybe the team will finally afford having multiple some licenses. Sorry, I, I couldn't help but say it. I feel <laughs> bad about this too. <laughs> I'll start a Kickstarter, Alexi, if you want to donate to the Y Labs having multiple Zoom accounts. <laughs> okay, yeah. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? No, I, I guess just that like I so love my career and it's been really, really rewarding professionally. It's been so engaging and interesting. And I know it can be scary to make the jump, just like it's scary to see grizzly bears on the other side of the river, but it's really powerful to be able to take yourself into kind of the edge of your comfort zone and to push yourself to do things that are hard. It's fulfillment as a human being to be able to grow and expand and improve. So to me, I think it's really valuable to be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to reach out to Danny, so he's first in Data Docs Club Slack, you can find him there. Then also the while you know, apps have their own Slack community. I remember when I joined your community, the first thing I saw was a message from you. I think it was automated because in the message, it assumed that we didn't know each other, but we did know each other. But yeah, you'll see a message from, is it still I, you? I, or... I don't send those messages anymore. You yeah. don't send this, but yeah. There is another place where you can find any or Twitter, I guess, right? Where else can people not, find Not it? huge on Twitter, um, trying to get more active on it, but LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, LinkedIn. all the time. Yeah, and, and you can just email me to danny at ylabs.ai. Okay, I guess that would be it for today. Thanks, uh, Danny, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, too, for asking questions. And tune in, like, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a workshop from Ylabs. So, yeah, keep an eye. Cool. Thanks, Alexi. Thanks for having me on. Good seeing you. Bye. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye.